The text to be read for the sermon, and then we'll pray together, is going to be Genesis 3, verse 14, and verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 14, and 15. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we come thankful. Uh, an appropriate response to your kindness of the incarnation and the birth of our Savior. His redeeming work, his act of obedience and passive obedience where he laid down his life on our behalf. Taking it up again to be raised three days later. The joy of the resurrection, his ascension to your right side wherein he begins to rule and to reign. Awaiting that final visitation upon the earth for a renewed creation. Redemption of our bodies. That we would too be with him in a new heaven and a new earth. We give you so great praise and honor for opportunities in time each Lord's Day to celebrate those great truths that change our lives, set our priorities, convict us of sin, nourish us in joy, even knowing we're sinners yet truly saved by grace. So, Lord, we thank you for, once again, being in our midst, strengthening our time, fueling our worship, bringing unity to people together under one confession, that Jesus is the Lord, and we give great praise for him. Now, Lord, bless your word going forward to us, the means whereby the Holy Spirit takes and transforms, convicts, confronts, and yet also graces that we might see the ugliness and repent, lay hold of a life of new obedience, also be encouraged and strengthen the great promises held out to us in Scripture. We praise you for this time. Use this to the profit of our soul and perseverance. If there is one who is not sure of their life in Christ through the vessel of faith, pray that this time would be an awakening moment for them. They would consider the life before you, the life that is to come. Their conscience would convict and guide them towards the promises held out to them of forgiveness through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Again, aid in our time. Be honored. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Think you where to go for a Christmas sermon. You, for me, I sort of started at the end of New Testament and, and New Testament literature looking back on the birth of Jesus. And you can move backwards in history to the Gospels and the account of the birth itself move further back into the Old Testament and you get to the prophets and their longing and their prophecy and calling for a Messiah, one who would come, move back a little further and you get into some of the Psalms and, and again some of those messianic calls of a king who is coming. Anyways, you just keep backing up and backing up and you get to Genesis 3.15. We went through this text over a couple years ago and even then, it struck me of, that it would be a good text for Christmas time. And as I thought through, moving back really to the first announcement of Christmas, the first seeds of hope that were planted towards 
Christmas. And so that is what we'll look at today is, is just those two verses. Christmas can't really be fully appreciated. The idea of Advent, the idea of the Incarnation, it can't be really fully appreciated until we start realizing just how desperately we needed a Savior. The more than just a baby in a manger, it is a rescuer who has come to save us. Then it starts to fill out in some of its beauty and some of its depth and some of its meaning for us. I think this year, maybe it's a little easier to think of generally the fallenness, the brokenness of this world in the sense that we need someone to set things right. It's been a... An odd year, obviously. Pandemic, racial division and unrest, political division and unrest. Just all kinds of things to kind of make you anxious, to make you worried. Many people have experienced or are experiencing, you know, trials, suffering because of the year. And so you think as you walk towards Christmas, it's a different feeling this year. Maybe some of the commercial aspect of it is taken away a bit. And you can look at it and generally think of, we do need someone who can make all that is turned upside down, all that is wrong, all the darkness that is around us, that, that can rescue that, that can make that darkness light. But really beyond that, I want to make it even more personal, that our own specific personal need of a Savior, people who have rebelled against God, Folks who in no way merit their own access to the Father. You need a way into the presence of God. We all need it. We are, sin, we are dead in our sin, in our transgressions. We are sinners and we need a Savior. I think Genesis 3, 14, and 15 goes back to the very heart, the source of it, that brings both of these ideas of just the darkness, the, the fallenness that affects this world that we live in, and our own sinful heart and souls, and how desperately we need a Savior, and how beautiful and necessary and triumphant is that little baby in a manger. The Christmas story is, is introduced here in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, and really one of the most devastating, ugly times in human history, right after the fall. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They have chosen to look elsewhere for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for identity and meaning. Deceived by Satan... Adam shirking his leadership and responsibility. They've sinned. Darkness has come upon them. And yet in that very moment of, of devastation, of scariness, of uncertainty, and what does this mean, in that very moment is a seed of hope, a beautiful word of grace and hope from the Lord what we call the Proto-Evangelium, that is the first announcement of the gospel, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. Once sin enters into the world, we almost immediately have this word of salvation that is following. And indeed, 
this announcement of Jesus coming, following right on the heels of this announcement of, of, of sin and devastation and curse and fall and judgment and separation from God, paints for us the picture of Christmas. John 1, a few verses from John 1, verses 4 through 9, says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus takes on flesh in the midst of a dark, fallen, broken world. It's not quite the serene picture that we get of the nativity. I think that's appropriate. I think it's, it's beautiful. And we'll look at that some even tonight as we work through the lessons and carols. But, you, you know, you have that picture of the starry twilight, the twinkling stars and the shepherds in the field and, you know, the, the cattle lowing and, uh, you know, just sort of that peaceful, beautiful picture that, you see in the nativity, and, and there is peace and hope and rest in that. But the picture here, the first promise of Christmas, is a bleak, black, dark situation. And the promise of hope and rescue right into the middle of all of that fallenness. A little context, and then I just want to draw out four thoughts from these verses most of you probably familiar, like I said, we went through these texts uh, just a little over two years ago, I think, and as, as it speaks to the fall, you, you, Adam and Eve, Eve tempted by Satan, she disobeys, Adam follows suit, they go hiding, and, and God comes, and, and in Genesis 3, then you have this pronouncement of judgment. You have this pronouncement of curse. And it'll devastate the world. We live in that fallen world today. But specifically, I want to look at the, the curse as it is mentioned in verses 14 and 15. The Lord pronounces a curse on the serpent. See, he'll now crawl about on his belly the dust of the ground, the days of his life, and this picture that we know now as, as be at odds, at enmity with human beings. And then he pronounces that specifically. And specifically, he says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, that is Satan, and the woman, that is Eve. He, he will drive a wedge of enmity between the two of them. And then it broadens a little bit. And he says, and between your offspring between her offspring, the seed of woman, offspring, all the children of Adam and Eve, us, humanity, the offspring of Satan, I think just the domain of darkness, all that belongs to evil and darkness, all that is facing us around us, that, that there will be warfare, that there will be enmity put between the, the woman and Satan, between humanity and darkness. And then it, it, it kind of narrows back a little bit to the seed of woman, and it says that he and Satan, you have this, this now conflict arising. 
that that is where the enmity will kind of reach its head. That is where the conflict will reach its head. We know that that seed, who's that, who that is, that is Jesus Christ. So when we think of Christmas now, we're looking at this, this, this promised arrival of this seed who will be at enmity with Satan. So four things to sort of observe about the, pro- the first promise here of Christmas. Number one, the promise of Christmas begins with a curse. The promise of Christmas begins with a curse. The promise of our salvation begins with a curse. A bit odd, I know, right off the bat, but we see that from verses 3, 14, and 15. It's interesting, when you look at, at the pronouncement of curses, as Adam and Eve have sinned, they recognize immediately what's taking place. They're hiding from God. And when God comes, you remember how he approaches them when, after the fall. He comes and he asks them questions. What's going on? Where are you? What? He, that's not God like gathering information. Like he's uncertain what's taking place and so he's just getting an idea. But it is, it's God in, in gentleness coming to them in their sin. They're going to face devastation and judgment. But the questions are to provoke a a spirit of repentance, a a spirit of of coming to God in the midst of their sin. It's kind of if you walk in on a child and they got chocolate all over their face and there's crumbs all over the floor and they're standing there looking at you. And you ask them, what happened? What did you do? It's not like it's apparent that you're uncertain what took place. You can tell what happened, but you're giving them this chance to sort of confess it, to repent of it. And God, as he approaches Adam and Eve, he does that. But you see, when he approaches Satan here for the first time, he doesn't ask any questions. He comes and he immediately pronounces a curse upon Satan. He never curses Adam or Eve. They face judgment. Because of Adam, the world faces, the earth faces a curse. But he doesn't come and curse them specifically like he does Satan. Instead, in the midst of their judgment, in the midst of the the pronouncement, in the midst of the devastation that they're going to face, he offers them a kernel of seed and a kernel of hope. But the promise of Christ begins with the pronouncement of a curse upon Satan, upon darkness, and upon the earth in which we are going to live. It follows from really this point on through scripture that things that are meant for evil, God takes and he turns them and he uses them for good. You begin to see that story of what men intend for evil, difficult things, hard things that pop up, that God takes that and he, in his grace and in his mercy and in his sovereignty, he takes that and he turns it and he uses it for our good. Well, you just talked about this text a week or two ago in, um, as we went through First Peter, but even in Genesis 50, by the end of Genesis, the story of Joseph. What, what man meant for evil, God uses for good. And even in the pronouncement of, the, the first announcement of Christmas, that a, 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 
Savior will come. It's in the context of something intended for evil, of Satan's deceit and devastation and man's sin. In the pronouncement of a curse upon Satan, God gives this glimmer of hope, this glimmer of salvation. And so we move on. The second observation then is that the promise of Christmas is a declaration of war. The promise of Christmas is a declaration of war. That is, God inaugurated warfare on our behalf. As you see that it's the seed of Satan, the, the seed of the woman, they will be at enmity with one another. That war is being declared. It, you notice, it's interesting, that God doesn't walk into the situation and say, Adam and Eve, you really messed up. Here's what I need you to do to make it better. Here's how you've got to fix this situation you got yourself in. Here's how you're going to have to beat Satan. Here's, uh, no, he pronounces to Satan, <laughs> I'm going to war with you. He, right at the moment. And pronounces in it to Adam and to Eve and to all humanity, I am going to war with Satan on behalf of you, my people. When God takes on flesh and we have this little baby in the manger in this scene, that's God being faithful to his promise that he has declared war on Satan. And right here we see it showing up in the manger. God incarnate. A declaration of war. As we look at scripture, as it describes Satan, just let's do a few descriptions here. It's called in Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren, that ancient serpent, considered our enemy. He's called our enemy again and again. The murderer of the hearts of men, John 8. The prince of the demons, the prince of the world, the ruler of this age. He stands as powerful and as against the people of God as can be. He stands as their enemy. And then when you hear the description of why Jesus came into this world... Why he became incarnate, there's different reasons the scripture gives us to his incarnation. But one of the most prominent is for his defeat of Satan. Just listen to a few of these verses. John, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Matthew 12, 29. Jesus binds and plunders the house of Satan. Do you remember that um, parable? It's found in Matthew. It's found in Luke. And it talks about the strong man. And it, strong man in his house, and he has his things, and he has them guarded. The strong man there is Satan. And he comes, and, and he has his people, and he has his tools, and it's guarded. But it says, when one who is stronger comes, he comes in and he plunders that house. He takes what is his. He takes what he wants from it. And in that, that is Jesus. He is the stronger man. He has come and he is plundering the house. He is taking back. He is taking what he wants from Satan. And you see him plundering. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 Corinthians 15. He will deliver the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemy under his feet. Colossians 2.15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Truly the baby in the manger is light invading darkness. It's a declaration of war upon the domain of darkness. We need a savior. Satan, the domain of darkness, is powerful. And God has come in human form on our behalf and has declared war on that darkness. Our third observation, the promise of Christmas is a baby boy. <clears throat> I think it's an unlikely manner. When you're reading Genesis 3, it seems unlikely that this is going to be the promise of the rescue that we need is a baby boy. It would make sense that he would, God would say, I'm going to send a, a legion of angels to come and destroy you, Satan and darkness. I, I'm going to, whatever it is. But instead he says, the, the seed of the woman. It's especially interesting in that Satan in his little moment of victory there over Adam and Eve, he uses the, the defection of the woman to his side in that momentary sense to cast the world into darkness, into sin and brokenness. And yet God in his infinite wisdom and in his mercy sees Eve there, tenderly gives her that name, Eve, the mother of all living. And from the seed of woman will come a rescuer. From the seed of woman will come the one who will overthrow darkness. And you have that promise there in Genesis 3. In some ways the most common way, in some ways the most extraordinary promise. And then you can track that, right, through scripture, the seed. And you see that Eve's mistaken when, when Cain and Abel are born. She thinks that this is the, the promised son. We see it's not. The story leaves you with, wow, that didn't work out. But then it keeps going. And then you get to Abraham, remember? And you have this fresh covenant and promise given, built upon this promise here in Genesis 3, 15. But Abraham's an old man, and Sarah's an old woman, and they can't have children. How is this going to work out? And God intervenes once again. And on and on the story goes. And then you get to the end of the prophets, and it's just 400 years of silence. Advent, waiting, longing. And then you have that announcement to Mary. You will conceive and bear a son. Mary, a, a no-name teenager from a no-name area. And yet God in his power enters in the most humble and meek of circumstances to declare war on Satan. And it's through this baby boy that we have this conquering king come. 
finally, the last observation here is that the promise of Christmas is life and death and life. <laughs> and this promise of Christmas is life and death and life, one that a baby would be born. But you look at the end of Genesis 3.15, and he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's the foreshadowing, the climax of this, the seed of, uh, from Eve, the seed of Satan. What exactly is he saying here? Perhaps your, your scripture translates it a little different. There's some, have you ever heard it said that he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel? Kind of painting a much different contrast there. Well, that's probably not the best translation because it's the same word, bruise, bruise. It's the exact same word used twice in that verse. Within the sort of semantic range of what the meaning could be, crush is an, is an okay translation of it. It's the idea of sort of a a critical blow or a massive blow that you're going to sustain. So it's you know, not bruise in like a little pinch that might bruise up. It's something bigger than that. So crush is an appropriate uh, word to use, but it's, it's you know, just common grammatical rules. You would use the same word there both times to translate. Bruise and bruise, crush and crush. I think that's important that we make that note because it's not that... Jesus is going to crush Satan, but he's, he'll receive just like a minor little wound or prick from, from Satan. But no, he'll experience a critical blow. He'll experience death. This baby born in major is born to die. The declaration of war, this promise of victory, comes through life and then it comes through death. That he will live an obedient life all the way to the point of death and he will die for you. In the initial promise of Christmas, a promise of death is included. The distinction in the passage is head and heel, not bruise and crush. And that's where our distinction lies. And you think of it in that idea of the serpent. I think that's what we're meant to draw upon. You think of a serpent kind of hidden in rocks somewhere. You're, you're walking past on a trail, and that snake comes up, and it gets you. The sneaky little snake gets you in the heel. And it's just a, a little bite, but it can be deadly. And that poison gets into you, and it has a deadly effect. And that is saying that that is what Jesus will experience from the Satan. He will experience that blow from the domain of darkness. A blow that will bring about death. But now you picture that same little serpent, that same little snake hiding in the rocks. He sticks his head out, and you put down a boot on its head. Smash its head, crush its head. Grind it good into the sand and the dirt. There's a difference, isn't there? That's the different picture, that, that prick, the deceitful Gaia, in the crushing of the head. So that indeed Jesus will suffer that blow, but because he was free from sin, he was free from the power of Satan, he's free from death. 
As the creed tells us, he will die. He will remain in the state of death for three days. The creed says it this way, he descended into hell. That's the idea of Jesus Christ dying, hanging on the cross, becoming a curse. Becoming sin. Experiencing the full wrath of God poured out on him as he was the ugliness of all your sin. He became a curse for us. That as he hung there on the cross, so ugly was sin that the Father turns his face away from him. That's the, the cry we've said before. R.C. Sproul terms that. The, the scream of the damned. As he hangs on the cross and yells, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Becoming sin, becoming curse, feeling wrath poured out of that to the point where the father turns away, forsakes the son in that moment as he can't bear to look upon the ugliness of that sin. The state of death for three days. That's what we mean when we say he descended to hell. The story doesn't end there, right? That he rose again. And he rose again because he lived, born of a woman, born under the law. He lived perfectly. That's why it's a baby boy that's given us and not a legion of angels. Because we needed someone who could share in our infirmity, share in, in our, our flesh and in our weakness, to be truly man. And to know temptation and to know sorrow. And yet to walk under the law perfectly fulfilling the law. The obedience that Adam and Eve failed in. The obedience that we every day fail in. Jesus Christ walked perfectly, actively in that obedience for us. And then in the end, he took the, ju the just punishment that we deserved. He took the wrath that we deserved. He experienced a death that we deserved. He experienced the forsaking of the Father that we deserve. In order that the seed of the woman, his people, his elect exiles, as 1 Peter calls us, could be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we would have the reward that he earned. And the first announcement, the first promise here of Christmas, yes, there's a serene picture that we see and that's good to dwell on and is good for our hearts and our souls. But Jesus Christ was born in the midst of fallenness and darkness and evil. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came as a declaration of war on Satan in the domain of darkness, an order that we could be brought from darkness into light. There's that uh, beautiful line in the, the, the song Joy to the World that he comes to make his blessings known for as the curse is found. That, that curse that is spread throughout this world, that Christ comes and becomes a curse himself in order to make his blessings known, in order that the face of God might shine upon us, in order that we might know grace and peace instead of wrath. Jesus Christ became that curse for us. So 
I challenge you to, to refocus your heart and your minds on that. If this is new for you, if you're hearing the gospel in a way you haven't heard it before, to meditate upon it, the Lord might open your heart and your mind. That this baby in the manger is your savior. He's the only hope of a savior. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that includes all of us. We rejoice in that this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of a newborn king. Lord, we thank you for all of the, the paradox of, of Christmas, the ordinary nature of it in so many senses, and yet the extraordinary nature of it, the incarnation. Lord, what councils and creeds have been formed around to, to try to get right is how do we understand Jesus is truly God and truly man? Lord, it's important because it's our hope of salvation to have one who is both just and the justifier. To have one who can sympathize, who can experience, who can take on wrath, and yet has the power over sin and the power over death. Lord, so we praise you for the humiliation of our Christ. We praise you for his incarnation, for his life for his death. 